Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hello, gentlemen. How are we doing today? Hello, sir. Good. The, the diva has arrived, <laughs> meaning me. <laughs> I don't even mean the guests, I mean me. So you were at a hair appointment, to, you were saying? What, what was it? Hair and nails. Hair and nails. <laughs> Had to blow dry that beautiful, beautiful locks. Mane. Yeah, the mane. <laughs> do you do the do you do like the Brazilian blowout or just a regular kind of like 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 perm type of type of thing? I definitely go all the way with the Brazilian blowout. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to welcome Bo to the show of Sayosin. Welcome. How are you doing? What's up? Doing good. Welcome. Thanks for being here. In case you guys don't know who he is, even though you should know, I'm just gonna say, in case you don't know. Um, it's the guitar player for the band Seosin, and also a producer who you should know. He's worked with bands like Under Oath, Hands Like Houses, Moose Blood. The Moose Blood, by the way, is uh, quite excellent. Oh, thanks. Many people, many people like it. Uh, also worked on the Saw Four original motion picture soundtrack. Was it four? Yeah, I mean. I mean, I don't really want to... I feel like sometimes there's, you know, like if you look at people's credits, sometimes there's things where it's like, okay, like I I moved a microphone. (laughs) Like I happened to like go visit a friend at a studio and he asked me to move a microphone and then for whatever reason, like they credit you as engineering the record, you know, and you're you're like, okay, well, I guess technically that is engineering, but like I really don't feel like I deserve that, you know. I got the Grammy Uh, because my dad was sick and I came in. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And yeah, I turned the knobs for for an hour, and now I've right. got a Grammy. I'm going, <laughs> exactly. to my, I'm going to my all music right now because there's one in there that's just ridiculous. Yeah, well, for me, <laughs> so for me, it's oh, but it was it was like a ska band, and Real Big Fish. We're not happy till you're unhappy, and it has me as like an engineer, and that's exactly what happened. I went to go visit my friend at a studio, moved a microphone, and then somehow the record came out. And it was like I engineered this. No, I I don't. No, I didn't. But. You know, but it's funny because I've had I've only had one band be like, "Yeah, we love you know what you did on Real Big Fish." And I'm like, I actually, I, I actually cannot take credit for that. I I need to be honest with you. Well, in two in 2004, I was not the choir director for <laughs> the concert in Caesarea with, with Emma, Emma with Emma Chaplin. <laughs> But yeah, no, I uh, on the Saw thing, it was just like, you know, like a, I think there was a Seosin song that got used in the, the soundtrack. But I have done some uh, like trailer scoring, like trailer composition that's been actually really fun and cool to do, which I thought was pretty cool. I just did like the trailer for, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, that big video game called Injustice, Gods Among Us. Oh, cool. It was a huge game. I don't really play video games, so I didn't realize the magnitude of it, but I've had people... Neither do I. I was just saying, oh, cool, because it sounded like a big game. Right, yeah. I mean, it has a cool title. And then there's that new Sasha Baron Cohen movie called uh, Brothers Grimsby, and they used that same composition at the end of that trailer. 
So it's it's no, that's really cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And then I've done a couple other ones, just like randomly, and then they get used in these like movies, and then all of a sudden you just kind of get a notification like, hey, here's a here's a cool check. So that stuff's cool. Did you start playing guitar first, or did you start producing first, or did it all kind of go hand in hand? I uh, I started playing guitar first before I was producing. But I got a late start on guitar because my parent. I don't think my parents wanted me to play guitar. They wanted me to do music, but I think like they they forced. They kind of like tricked me as a young kid. I wanted to play guitar. I was always remember Beavis and Butthead. You remember Beavis and Butthead, right? So, uh, <laughs> of course. Well, well, some people it's don't. Like, and it's what weird. kind of a question is that? Some people don't. And it's really weird. You know, it's like, oh, well, okay, yeah, but you remember Rugrats. All right, well, you know, just different, different uh, age groups, you know? <laughs> my second so, parents. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And so I was always totally like the dude Stuart. So it was like my, my cousin would come over and he was like the cool dude wearing the Slayer shirt and like had a skateboard. I was like the dorky kid wearing a winger shirt wearing like on rollerblades. So, and that's kind of like how I was for a lot of the time. So my parents like wouldn't let me get a guitar. I had to like learn how to play piano first. And then after that, they were like, yeah, after you play piano, you can get a guitar. And then... So I learned piano, and they're like, well, if you want to learn how to play guitar, you better learn how to sing, so you're going to have to join choir first. And then I was like, oh, give me a break. So it's like, here now I am, like, already missing out on, like, three or four years that I could have been getting good at guitar. I'm, like, in junior high or something, and I'm, like, still in choir. And then, so I finally got a guitar, maybe, like, eighth grade or something, and that's when I kind of, like, really got... I was finally able to kind of jump into the music I wanted to, and then even then... I grew up in a pretty, really, well, I don't want to say really, but pretty conservative house, so I wasn't allowed to listen to any music that had, like, swearing or, uh, like, strange topics in it, and if my parents would hear anything that had, like, a curse word in it, I would have to, like, br- bring the CD downstairs and go over the lyrics with my mom, and, like... <laughs> like you too? Dude, it's... I had to do, oh, it, was the I had to do it with that as well. It was the worst, so then I had to do all of, like... Uh, so then I would have to go to like the Christian music store. No, and, like, I didn't have to do that. And then I would have to find like, oh well, if you like uh, if you like Metallica, then you'll like you know Happy Metallica or whatever it is, and like you can listen to them. And so what I ended up doing actually is I ended up. You know, like when you had cassettes, you could like put tape over the top of the cassette that you would buy, so you could record on top of it. So I would record the Metallica tapes and put them on like the Happy Metallica tapes and that way when my mom would question me like what I was listening to I would come down and show her the tape and be like no no it's this see you, you are know? a ninja so I mean it only worked like half the time like I remember I bought Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam 10 when that came out and it was like during Jeremy I think and it was like seemed like a harmless little I don't know if I can say it but like F word you know and my mom heard that like loud and clear through like I don't know, like our heater vents or something. She like came up <laughs> storming in my room. She's like, what the heck was that? <laughs> so I had to take that back to, uh, at the time it was called Warehouse Video. And it was like the most embarrassing day of my life. Cause I was like, I have to return this because it has a curse word on it. And like, you know, the dude who had like a nose piercing at the record store was like, what a wimp, you know? So it was just like, <laughs> it's it like the ultimate, like Beavis and like Stuart thing. You know? it's just, <laughs> it's amazing. It was so embarrassing, yeah. But anyways, I think yeah. you recovered. But so, yeah, 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 I still don't. I'm still totally insecure about it. But, but now, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, yes, I started playing guitar before uh, I started producing. But then as soon as I started playing guitar, I realized I was writing all these cool songs or ideas. But then 
I also had kind of a terrible short-term memory. So I would write all these cool songs and I just couldn't remember them ever. So I had like my little ghetto blaster and like I would start like recording the songs like into it, but then I would immediately have these ideas of like, oh, well, this would sound awesome, like with another kind of like arpeggio guitar part behind it. How do I do that? So I got another ghetto blaster and I would sit next to the one ghetto blaster, play my guitar while play it into one ghetto blaster, like just using, because they didn't have like line in or things, so you just had to use the microphone input. So I would use the mic going into the other one, playing my guitar, and then I would have to hit play on that ghetto blaster, then face the other second ghetto blaster, and then adjust my guitar volume and the ghetto blaster volume, like mix it almost like a live concert into the microphone of the other ghetto blaster, and that's how I would like multi-track onto like a cassette deck. So uh, I have did you heard all of these, these things? Yeah, right? You've done it's, them it's, too? All the, it's all <laughs> the stuff that like you just had to do like when you just didn't have the means to do it, you know? And at this time, this is like probably like, man, this makes me sound super old, but like probably like 95 or so. And this do is, you have any of these? Still? You know what? I still have, I still have like one or two of them, but I have no way to play them. Like I have no cassette deck. Yeah. Um, so answer is yeah, yes, I'd but love no. To hear, I'd love is there to like hear a them. plugin? Is there a plugin for that? <laughs> there is. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I tried to use like the Kramer. Joe, I tried to use one. the Kramer tape thing, but like it, it there's nowhere to put it on my computer. So <laughs> Kramer. Yeah. It looks like maybe, sli- maybe slate tape will uh, USB tape machine. Yeah. There we go. Dude, yeah. Just a little like analog thing that you plug in tape, like USB no, saw, to your computer. Uh, you know, I saw a Cell Dweller was doing, he, he always posts, you know, um, uh, what is it, Instagram stories and all that. Yeah. He's always on there and Snapchat, and he was messing around with, with uh, somehow he was putting tape into his laptop with, like, this tiny little tape player. And That'd like, be pretty cool. Re- yeah, he had some kind of cool setup where he, he could, like, record and play back things in and out of the computer through this tiny little tape deck, but... You know, I digress. Only cell dweller. Right, yeah. yeah. I have I, I mean, I have a feeling though, like if we were to go back and listen to those tapes, our memory of the tape is a lot better than what it actually is. So I don't I don't <laughs> yeah. even know if I wanna hear those. I think I'll just live with the fake memory. I'll I'll live with my, my alternate fact that it was actually really kick ass. <laughs> well you want you realize that like if if that technology was invented, like every producer that we know personally who grew up kind of like in this era, yeah, that w- we did plus or minus five years, yeah, has those tapes yeah. in their parents' basement or something. Totally, God, so much bad music could be unearthed. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so so many shitty mixes, yeah. Yeah. All right. So you started with uh, your with uh, science recording. That's what we'll call yeah. it. How did how did it become real recording? How did you graduate from science projects to um, real? So uh, I had a friend. I, I guess it was kind of an acquaintance of a friend, and he had kind of like he was kind of like you know like there's always like the rich kid who has like the cool stuff. Um, yes. So I so I grew up in Costa Mesa, which if you're I'm so jealous of that kid, <laughs> dude, yeah, every, everyone was. Well, I was especially so I was especially jealous because I you you remember that show Newport Harbor High or like Newport Harbor? It was like on MTV for a while, and it was like the OC and all that stuff. So I grew up just on the outskirts of that. So kind of like 
the the poor side. Of, it's not like poor side of town, but like definitely nowhere. Like I had like growing up, like my dad gave me his like old uh, like office. He he owned like a saw blade business thing, and he gave me like his old uh, like delivery car, which like was a '68 Volkswagen Bug, and it had. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but it had it had holes in the bottom of the uh, of the car. So like, if you lifted up like the rugs, it was all rusted out underneath. And we would we would drive on the street, and like, if anyone would tailgate us, we would just drop like Pepsi cans out the bottom of my car because <laughs> they had no idea it was coming from our car. So it was just a good it was just a good way to like tell the people that were tailgating just fuck off, you know? Dude, so you kind of had a cha- you had like the poor man's James Bond. Car. Oh, yeah, totally. It was like my oil <laughs> slick. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> you think about the th- think about what you could have done with that thing. Oh, that car. Oh man, I missed that car. It finally caught. So my. <laughs> Sorry. There's so many stories that I could just go on about, but that car ended up finally dying one day. And everyone would always tease me about that car because I would always do these kind of mods on it, you know, and like put new carburetors on it and stuff. And one day it, they would always tease me. We would go skateboarding it, and I had no back seats in the car, so we could like fit more people back there and more skateboards so we'd go skateboarding and then everyone would always be like dude Bo I think your car's gonna blow up but any one day my buddy in the back was like yo your car's on fire man I was like yeah shut up whatever and it was actually on fire because the engine's in the back so you can't really see it and I had no like uh, rear view min- window, uh, mirror so I couldn't see it and then I finally t- he's like dude fucking pull over man and so we pulled over and then my car blew up but anyways uh, <laughs> but anyway yeah, so anyways, growing up in Orange County, Newport Beach, all that, it was like I had, like, I was driving around in that beater, and it was that, I was, like, s- stoked, whereas everyone else at my school was the the classic, you know, like, oh, I'm so bummed, like, my dad bought me, an like, a brand new M3 for my birthday, and it only has, like, the $5,000 rims on it, like, ugh. I'm so bummed, you know, and it doesn't have a DVD player like in each seat. Ugh, I'm so bummed. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that thing's like worth more than my house. Like, you guys are crazy. Anyways, but yeah, so there was those kids and then it was like, they had, it was like, whoa, you have like five like ADAT machines and you have like a Mackie 32.8 console and like all this cool stuff. So I would go over to their places and like check out some of the stuff they were doing and then one of my friends knew that person really well and was able to let me borrow some microphones from him which I think I still have like two of them I still still have like maybe two of like the 421s that he let me borrow now like what 20 or some odd years later but yeah so I went over there and I was I wasn't super impressed with everything that I was hearing so I started I bought I didn't like how um like the editing was just like impossible on like DA88s and it felt like you kind of had to have like a whole band to like get anything done. So I bought I remember it was this, it was this white like Acer computer and uh I think it was Cubase 1 maybe and then I had like an Echo Layla converter, like one of those 8 channel ones. And I remember that. Uh, yeah. And it sucked. I mean, it's like and what's funny is like if you think if you're a Pro Tools guy, like I'm a Pro Tools dude, and to me, Cubase is just like a little, like, 
it's not hard to work around, but like some of like just the way like getting the inputs assigned and like some of the weird routing things is like was a little bit difficult for me to to grasp now. Like trying to because I'm trying to kind of like gradually go over to Cubase in case the next Pro Tools update is like another like you know four thousand dollars once you factor in like your HDX card and the software and everything. So on the on the off chance, yeah, 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 yeah totally. On the off chance that Avid does something fucked up. Yeah, I'd like to somewhat be prepared. But anyways, on like Cubase 1 or whatever it was, it was even more ridiculous because it was like, in order to change the input, you had to do things, you know, and as someone that was new to computers, like, wait, I have to hold control and click to like change the input of the channel? Like, uh, this is just crazy but anyways um, <laughs> um, well you know what I mean though like as like a 17 18 year old kid who like doesn't really know computers at all you're just kind of like man that is just that is that is a lot to remember that like is this is just in the law yeah yeah it's just like man what are you guys do no one's gonna use this this is ridiculous <laughs> I started doing that and then I was kind of like putting together my own demos of stuff and then showing those to some friends because I was trying to start a band and then for whatever reason people started thinking that my demos were better than like the like quote unquote like real studios that were uh, around the area so then I just it was just kind of all word of mouth like hey you should have Bo track your band so then I actually bailed all the furniture out of my bedroom we lived in like a like a two door three bed wait 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 how did it go from all that to Bo should track your band? They just kind of like, tur- my demos just started kind of turning out good. And then like people would hear them. And then I recorded one band and it like turned out. Okay, okay. So you've been, so this whole time you've been refining, refining your craft, working away through the not re- dead of night. Not really. It was, I think that, you know, because this is back in 95 or around the, maybe 97-ish. So it really didn't take much to, like, sound better than, like, your local, like, dumbass studio that was doing demos for bands. You know what I mean? Like, as long as you, like, had ears and could, like, actually care about the project, chances are it was going to turn out better than what those studios were doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, all those demo houses yeah. that were out there, just guys just trying to cash in on unsuspecting bands so I think just because I cared about it and I knew and a lot of it was kind of like emo and like more like indie rock stuff so because I like listened to a lot of that music I understood the tones that the bands were trying to achieve and uh, I think I did like one band and then from there it just kind of like split out into multiple things I bailed all the furniture out of my bedroom because I wanted to get like a little workstation area and my bedroom wasn't big enough to have like a bed and like a workstation. <laughs> so I had, uh, I think I just had like a little fold out couch and then my workstation and that was the extent of like my room. And we lived in like a two story condo. So what I did is I, I ran like a snake cable out of my bedroom window into the garage and then I would have like the bands play in the garage and then I would record it like as the control room was up in my bedroom. And then my parents finally got pissed because I would have these band guys like coming through the house and like, you know, having dirty feet going like through the carpet and like up and down the stairs and shit. And then they finally let me take over half of a two car garage. So I basically had a one car garage that I built a control room and a little ISO booth in. 
And then that's where I started doing all of kind of like the records that I was somewhat like, that kind of like really got me going, like the Seos and Translating, the Name EP, the Bled, Name Taken. Uh, a lot of those records were all done like in a, in a control room and a studio that existed in like a 10 by 20 space. Nice. Hopefully that answers the question. It does answer the question. It's uh, the only thing that I'm unclear on. Yeah. Is how old you were. Oh, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I did leave out a huge part. So <laughs> so when I started recording bands... Well, I mean, you know, because if you were 45 when you did all this, I wouldn't be that impressed. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Bo just celebrated his 45th birthday, everyone. Uh, 40, 49th b- birthday. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so actually, let me just look here. So in, 90, so in 97... I'm just looking at my all music right now. Um... So in 97, I joined this band because I was playing in uh, like the, the high school kind of like church music band because that's kind of like where you go to meet people and, you know, find other people that might be into music that are kind of, I mean, especially now, I guess, like the worship world is just huge. Uh, but anyways, so in 97, I joined this band and it was a guy that was kind of like already signed. And I think I was around maybe 18 at that time. Um, so I joined that band. We did one record in Los Angeles, the studio called Front Page, which from what I believe, a lot of Guns N' Roses' uh, Appetite for Destruction was tracked there. And it was like the full-on, you know, like big Neve console, like tracking to tape, that whole experience. And then, and you know, so I guess I took a little break from recording at this point. And I feel like that's been my biggest hurdle uh, throughout my career is that, you know, like with recording, you kind of like have to like dive in and like keep swimming. Like if you get out of the pool, someone's going to pass you by. Um, and like as well as new technology comes out and then you kind of, you know, it's, it's easy to get passed by a lot. In 98, I did another ba- record with that band um, and it was the same type of thing. Uh, we actually did it at Alien Ant Farm Studio in Huntington Beach, and that was another one of those like tape experiences that was kind of cool. And then, right around maybe '99, I think, is when I started. I quit that band, and then, uh, so let's see, 2002. So you're maybe like 18, 19, 20, kind of those those years. Is when all this is happening? I'd say probably 20, yeah. 20 by this point, 21 maybe. Which means that all those, that high school stuff, okay. Yeah, 18. So 50, okay. All right, got it. Now I understand at what what stage of your life you're at. So, But like I said, I was, a late, I, was, uh, I was late to the game because I felt like I was held back so much. I feel like if I would have had a game. Man, Dave Dave Pensado didn't start mixing till he was 35. Wow. I'm curious about something because in my area, you know, I come from the Midwest and small town. Uh I'm I'm curious, like, out where you were at this age, were there other people around you that were like, you know, coming up and killing it? Because for me, it was the internet. Like, I would get on the internet and I would be like, man, this guy's killing it. This guy's doing this. This guy's doing that. And like, it would you know, make me competitive, make me want to get better. But like, were you seeing that around you, like in your town or in nearby cities or was it, was there any kind of online influence for that? No, no. I mean, like, I don't even, I mean, I could be wrong, but like, 
I don't feel like I was really involved with the internet up until, man, like whenever Translating the Name came out. So whenever that was. So like four maybe or 2000, no, it must have been 2003. That's probably around the same time for me as well. Yeah. So, but I mean, so up until then, like I really didn't have like, and I I only really cared about the internet when it came time to like try to find stuff regarding audio and you know it's like back then there really wasn't at least that I could find uh I wasn't too savvy with it but I couldn't really find anything I wanted to learn you know like all the things that I wanted to learn were like advanced things that were potentially not even in the manual you know it's like hey how do you um like I'm noticing that, like, when I'm doing my, uh, like, you know, snare replacements, you know, like, I'm having to, like, tab to transient, and then, uh, you know, like, for me, I'm using, like, quick keys, so it's, like, I use, like, the LP semicolon and, uh, like, apostrophe to, like, navigate, like, for the left, right, up, and down tabbing, and, you know, it's, like, okay, well, I'm writing a script for that, like, to, to go, you know, like, tab to the right, then go down, then paste, then back up, tab over again and then down and paste trying to write a script for that like how can I make that a little bit more efficient so that it like when I'm tabbing I don't get like a miss transient like you know what I mean like where you get like those transients that are not actually a transient say like in your snare you'll get like a kick sound in your in your snare that's that that's that hidden knowledge that yeah back in that day you could only get that okay perfect Thank you for saying this. Yeah. When we talk about how mentorship has kind of died and how we didn't have the kinds of things like nail the mix that hopefully kids are not taking advantage of today, but that are taking advantage of today. These are the kinds of things that we're talking about. It was not so much that you dip the mids on the on toms and oh, turn right. up 5k or something it was stuff like this this was the stuff that you could only get if you were being mentored by someone at a real studio who would tell you these things right. because they're not intuitive they're not you're not just going to find it on some forum though now now you might find it like in our group or something right but these are the kinds of things that we're missing or at least now it's acknowledged, you know, whereas yes, like, exactly. you know, you're trying to do stuff and especially, you know, and Joe, you probably got this a little more, especially work or, and you too, y'all, especially working with heavy bands where it's like, you know, okay, well, like, you know, we have this section that goes from like, you know, whatever, like seven over 12 and then it goes to this, but then it ramps up from 180 BPMs to 210, but we want our click track to go to dotted, dotted eighths over this section so that our drummer can still, and you know, and you're like, oh shit. My life. Yeah, and you're like, shit, how do I do that? You know, so you're like, okay, well, I'll call my buddy who works at like a pro studio. Hey, how do I change my, you know? And it's like, because that stuff was not even acknowledged on the internet yet, you know? And then even crazier things, you know, like, okay, well, I need to, you know, go into shuffle mode and like loop this whole uh, section of the song, but it needs to be on the grid. But then for whatever reason, like when I'm looping this whole section, like the automation and the playlists under this are not following that. So now I'm all of my alternate takes are all fucked up like how do i fix that 
you know like how do i get everything to loop and like those oh my god you're bringing back some ptsd yeah you know what i mean and like none of that (laughs) stuff was even acknowledged you'd go to look and you're like this has got to be a thing i can't be the only person with this problem and it's like you could only find those things you know i had um after a while, I got to know this guy, Cameron Webb, um, who's done like a ton of records. And like, I could finally ask him questions. But, you know, besides, besides that, there was re- very few people that you could reach out to that would like know the answers to these types of things, especially working with, you know, the heavier and more technical stuff, because it's like, why the general answer you would get is like, why the fuck do you want to change it to dotted eighth click notes? That's, that's stupid. It's like, well, I don't, I mean, I agree, but the band wants it and the drummer says he needs it. So how do I do it? You know, it's like, you got me, man. You know, so yeah, the, the, uh, the internet now is like, uh, invaluable. Um, but sorry to go back to your question, Joey, no, around me, there wasn't really a ton of people that were like crushing it although there was a ton of like super rad bands there was like 18 visions bleeding through throwdown all these bands that were like kind of killing it like within like that kind of orange county hardcore genre um but for whatever reason i think that i don't know if it was just like a feeling of like that i had to do it on my own or like i don't know i just i just always felt like i needed i'm like i need to do my own thing i never really wanted to like go in like I don't really know how to articulate what I'm saying but I just felt like I'd, I was like I always had the 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 attitude of like oh like fuck what everybody else is doing I want to like do my own thing so how does uh Seosin play into this and how does I mean did did that change your life I mean obviously it did but did it change like the kinds of clients you were getting or did it yeah <laughs> actually did it yeah, I, I know it did uh, because I, I, I my band wasn't even like a tenth the size of Seosin and my life changed forever so I know I mean I, I know the answer to this right. but but, at the, but one thing that I'm wondering is that along with that obvious change did it also maybe hinder your recording time at all oh yeah 100 percent um uh there's this band called the bled that i really loved um i did their first record and i think that i was signed up to do like every record after that you know we had talked it was like dude this next record we're gonna do it cool but because of the crazy uh touring schedule i wasn't able to do any of them so you know it's and it's it's hard because being in a band pretty much consumes your entire life so I really had to put recording, uh, you know, on the back burner until I could find time to do it. And then even still, I feel like there's a huge, um, for me, there's a big adjustment period, like going from being in a band to like being producer. Cause I feel like you, you hear music completely different. It's like, it's almost like that, you know, the whole, like, don't edit the same day you're going to be mixing. It's like two different parts of your brain, you know? And I find that, like... So don't produce the same year that you're going to be in a band? Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, no, just from, like, being on stage, you know, you want to hear and feel music a a different way, and that's completely different than the way music sounds coming out of, like, a six-inch speaker, you know, like four four feet from your head. You know, that's totally different than the way it sounds coming out of, like, 18-inch subs and side fills and a huge stage. So it's like, there's, a, there's like, a feeling of the way that, like, my body, like, hears music that's a little bit different that you have to get used to. You know, it's kind of like when you, 
Have you ever had like a guitarist dial in and it's like just for fun, have a guitarist try to dial in an amp sound? If you stick them in front of an amp, they're going to dial in, the, you know, or at least there's, uh, I would hope that they would be able to dial in a pretty good sound. But a lot of the times, if I find that, like, if I stick them... Did you just say fun? Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah. for fun? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I kidding. mean, just like, yes. just like an inside kind of like Dr. Evil kind of joke to play on yourself. Like, you know, like, let them dial in a tone. So sometimes they can dial in a pretty good tone. Uh, and then, but I find if you stick the amp in the ISO booth and then just let them listen to what's coming out of the speakers, a lot of the times they'll dial in something that's completely unusable. And I've, I've, I've totally noticed that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like because they're trying to get the feeling of what it feels like standing in front of an amp out of a little six-inch speaker, and it's just not the same thing. So that's part of like kind of the energy thing that I find that I had to balance going back and forth between the two. I feel like it was a big obstacle to get over, but I also feel like, I guess that's just one part of it. You know, being in a band, there's a lot of areas that I feel I'm more compassionate uh, towards the artist or more understanding of over other producers that may not have been in a band before. Um, you know what, man? Like, uh, wh okay, so when I retired from my band and I went to work at Audio Hammer, I guess I was the only guy who had done the band thing for a while. And I know exactly what you mean because there were sometimes things where if there, there would be a, not a conflict, but like a, a, like something that I could tell was causing tension with the bands, and I knew that it was something based on the fact that the other two guys had just never toured before. I would take them aside and be like, "If we just approach it like this, it'll go way better with the band. Trust me." And because I was just sensitive to the needs of a touring unit. Right. It's just something you develop if you've done it. Yeah. I mean, and I think it goes even farther too. Like if you've ever made a record and, you know, you've written a record, you've spent all that time writing it and then you, you record the record and then the producer doesn't deliver like what you want or you find out that like, oh man, like when I thought that the, the producer had too much symbols in the Tom mics, I was actually right because now like the mixer guy had to sample replace all of our toms. You know, like actually there's a record that I just worked on where uh, the band went and recorded drums with someone and they thought they had great drum sounds and then when they got out of that studio and then sent me the tracks to mix, I was just like, dude, guys, this is like not usable. Uh, I, like I'm sorry, you know, and it was like there was like splash symbols and stackers and uh, you know like just like it's full on like rad kind of like periphery style drum kit where there's just like so much like cool symbol and like brass percussion stuff going on, but just stereo overheads with like a ride mic and a hi hat mic, and you're just like oh dear, and you're like cool. Well, I can't really automate any of this stuff because the way that you're using those stackers is like all like you know in between big like crash hits that's right next to it so like sorry you know and you know and, and you're just it sucks because you know you, you we've all been there we're just like man like i know what it feels like to just be like it's like all the wind is taken out of your sail when, when someone finally tells you like man like i'm sorry but like you really screwed the pooch on the recording there's nothing i can do like short of 
do you want me to like reprogram all your drums in Superior Drummer? You know, like that's really the only way you're going to get like all the definition out of like these stacker things, you know, but if the intention is to kind of keep it somewhat natural, then sorry, you know, like let me produce your next record and then I guarantee it'll sound way better, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just unfortunate when you see bands go through those things, you know, and as an artist where you've, you feel like you've been let down a little bit. It's just, you're like, oh man, I know the situation you're in. I wish so badly there was more I could do, but unfortunately there's nothing I can do for you. It's, it's, it sucks to be in that situation. I've definitely had to deal with lots of bands in that situation. And usually it's their own damn fault though. Yeah. Usually it's because they're trying to pocket the advance right. and uh, have their friend track them. Yeah, and then have the big have the big boys mix it. Right, God. you know it, it's kind of like in in some ways I feel bad, like I share your empathy, but at the same time, right, I do kind of feel like you made you made your bed, boys. Now you got to sleep in it. Right. Well, actually, now I, I got to sleep in it. I know. I'm gonna have to fix. I'm gonna have to fix your fucking bed. Right. But uh, <laughs> but build you a whole usually, new house <laughs> and paint it yeah. and furnish it. it it's generally because they're uh, pocketing that advance and hiring a buddy to track stuff that he has no business tracking. Been in that situation so many times, and then they just... In some ways, it's amazing. They, they view the mixer as so powerful that he'll be able to you know, to fix any of these problems. And then sometimes, I think it's also that they just don't... You know, they're not pro-engineers, so they don't know what these problems are. Right. So, you know, when it's kind of like one of these things, like when you're flying as a passenger on a plane, you don't hear about when things are going wrong or anything. They don't tell us. Right. So when good engineers are tracking stuff, you know, there could be problems throughout the entire session and the band may never hear about it. So they may just walk away thinking all he did was put up some mics, tune some drums, and it sounded great. We could do this. Oh, totally. We could totally do this. Pocket the money, fucking go to Vegas, and uh, <laughs> we, we, we got this. Yeah. You know, the, even extreme versions of that is when, like, I, I've worked on records before where the band would be like, Oh, we want the songs to be like more interesting, and so like, <laughs> yeah, like that's my fucking problem. But you know, so like I come in, you know, and add stuff to the songs and and all this, and then like one of the ba band members like would convince the label to give them like ten grand or twenty grand to like go out and buy a computer and buy like a bunch of like sample libraries and stuff, and then like. And, and add shit to the and then I would just literally they would the interesting budget they would just add me like or sorry they would just send me files and be like oh this song's different now like we just did that we like it's like another producer just working on the record without telling you anything and then <laughs> oh yeah I'm just like what the hell <laughs> like yeah I was mixing this song like an hour ago and you just complete the whole song's different now and you're sending me all these new files and stuff it, it was yeah the, I mean and it's not the, different it's more interesting yeah <laughs> well and the worst too is like you know I mean I just again like I feel like these last uh two projects I just did were just so like everything you can think of that was like I mean I don't want to say amateur hour but like it, it's like 
but it kind of is, which is totally unexpected given the circumstances. But like, you know, things like, uh, like I, I was mixing this record and, and there was so many times where, you know, like I normally have it to where like when a band wants me to mix something, I normally tell them, you know, hey, pretend that I'm on a tape machine and all I have is an analog console. So I'm going to be doing like fader moves and like some EQ stuff. And then of course the immediate response is like, wait, you don't have any compressors? It's like, no dumbass. Like just, just pretend that like I can't <laughs> just pretend that like I can't throw, like I don't just pretend I don't have like the, the AM radio effect button that I'm going to press. Like if you want it to be AM radio effect right there, print it. You know, like if you want certain effects in these places, print it. If you want delay on your guitars right there, print it. Like, don't assume that I am going to just know that you want these things there. But this one band I just did, like, didn't do any of that. So I, I would, like, send out a mix, and they're like, yo, this is fucking awesome. The only thing is, is, like, in the verse, there's supposed to be an extra harmony there. I don't know if that got sent to you. And then in the bridge, we want the AM radio effect. And then the drums are supposed to be distorted. And then in the first verse, um, I'm gonna se- I'm gonna send you over the string part because the guitars get muted there. And I'm like, why the fuck? Why am I mixing these? Why am I mixing this session? It's a different song. Yeah, this is the wrong session. Like, why did you send me this? You know. And then, of course, at the end, it's like, cool. Final mixes are good, right? Yeah, everyone approves. Cool. Um, so there's like an in-between outro intro thing that needs to go here, and also the ending drum part of these two songs need to be converted to like electronic 808 drums. Is that something you can do? And like, okay. Again, this should have been done beforehand. Like, why am I stuck doing this? But it's like, and then of course, me being like super understanding because the band like didn't really have like a producer and there's like weird things with like the management and like, you know, I'm just like, man, I feel so bad for you guys. Like, I'll just, okay, like I'll do everything I can to like make this record work, you know, because I would really like to see the band. And again, too, it's like, man, I would really like to see the band to succeed because... You know, it's like every record that you work on, the better the record does, like the better that is for you because no one cares about like a rad record you did that no one heard, you know, like it's, it's crazy to me how sometimes like, say like, I don't know, let's just say like, I don't know how true this is and I could totally be talking up my ass, but I'm assuming that like whoever recorded like Metallica Ride the Lightning was probably really busy like for the next like five, ten years. Like and no one right. cared no one cared how bad that record sounded. They just care about how huge it was. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like I feel like unless the records do well, that doesn't really do anything for you. Which also kinda leads me to another like rant of like sometimes, you know, like you get stuck on these projects that last like five, six months and then like the record might get shelved. It's like, I feel like that's like the worst (laughs) thing. You know what I mean? Because now it's like, well, shit, now for the next five months, I have no records coming out. Like everyone thinks I'm just not busy. So, yeah. It's funny. I was, we were talking to Josh Newell about this Uh and uh, he just finished 18 months with Linkin Park. And uh, even at that level, you know, one of the biggest bands on the planet even at that level, he's experiencing a little bit of that. Well, I've just been on one project only for 18 months. That's kind of scary getting on 
after that it's like entering the dating market again almost yeah. after being married for a decade <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally you know one thing that i think is interesting is when i was in a lower position in the industry or whatever or like a more amateur i had this uh notion that things would get i guess more together as i went on and got bigger like bigger bands are like bigger more organized like the chaos doesn't happen and then what i realized is there's just more of it more chaos like that experience yeah that you just had with uh with them basically giving you the wrong session yeah you know that that stuff just i feel like there's more of it the further you go the worse it gets yeah and it, yeah and it's like and it's it's funny too because there's like so many things that you just you think that are just common sense you know or at least as maybe it's just because we as like maybe the mixers or or whatever position that we are in or whatever type maybe it's just the type of person we're in but i don't want to say that because like it happened to me like even on this Seosan record i was mixing the Seosan record and I was streaming mixes to my bass player. Um, basically, me and Chris kind of like do everything in the band. There's kind of like Bo songs and Chris songs, and that's the extent of it. And it's like this amazing working relationship that we have. It's pretty unique. But anyways, I'm streaming mixes to him, and he keeps telling me how loud the rack tom is. And I'm just like, I don't, I'm like, I'm not hearing it. And at the time, I had like moved my monitors around in your in my room, which... You know, again, very important that like wherever you set up your monitors, you got to be able to trust them 100%. It's the only way you're going to like be able to make confident moves. But I had moved my monitors trying to like eliminate like a, a weird bass null that I was having. So I just moved them and then I'm like streaming him mixes and I'm like, man, I don't know, man. I'm listening to, I'm listening to this on like three different sets of headphones, like different, like a boom box and like... This monitor, I mean, like, the Rack Tom is, like, pretty dialed in with the kit. I don't know why. And I'm not sure if he was saying it was too loud or whatever. Let's just say it was too loud, right? And he's like, dude, the Rack Tom is, like, fucking blaring. And the Floor Tom, like, I can't even hear it. I was like, well, I don't understand, man. Like, what is going on? Anyways, ten minutes later, he's like, dude, I don't know. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, uh, yeah, so... I was laying in my bed, like listening to the, the the stream, and like my left monitor is like closer to my bed, and the right monitor where the floor tom is is like five feet away from my bed, and they're both like facing the opposite wall. So all I was hearing was the left monitor, which is where the rack tom was panned, and that's why I kept thinking the rack was too loud. And you're just like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? Like you've made you've made like six records. Like how do you how does that still something that happens and then after i'm done bouncing out the mixes we, we get sorted through that right then he's listening to it in his car and he's like dude the symbols sound super fucked up man like i don't know what the fuck's going on but these symbols are so fucking harsh man and, like they sound like bad mp3s and i'm like all right well i'm gonna send you like here's like a 2448 wave file like in case there's something weird with like the mp3 conversion here you go check this out no man it's still super fucked up all right, like, does it sound like I'm listening to like 10 different records that I'm comparing it to? It sounds pretty normal, you know? Like, I realize I'm going for a little bit more symbols just 
on this type of thing that we're going for, but I don't hear it being fucked up. Anyways, long story short, it's like, oh man, I had like this weird podcast high-end enhancement thing going on, <laughs> and like, <laughs> it was fucking up everything, but it was the only... Like your our mixes were the only thing I've been listening to my car, so I had no other reference of like how bad it was making everything else sound. So I was just like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, and then we wasted a whole day on, you know what I mean? But like, there's all these things that can happen that you're just like, yeah, you would think that it goes away, but it never does, you know? And, and no, <laughs> as, as a matter as a matter of fact, we have a story of a uh, of a very famous A and R guy who we all know, I'm not going to mention uh-huh. his name, who in his office he had studio monitors. And he was one of these neurotic A&R guys who would, like, punish records. Like, he would make records take forever. And uh, he was very, very involved. And his damn monitors were wired out of phase. And we know this because a buddy of ours, a mixer, one day flipped out and flew all the way from overseas to go to his office and to collect a check about something else uh-huh. and then noticed that his speakers were out of phase. So, like, the whole idea that the people giving you mixed notes could be compromised... Oh, yeah. ...is very, very real. Oh, 100%. And as well as, like, I feel like it's important to find people that you have kind of a like mind or that you guys both like the same types of stuff, or that you both get each other's mixing style. Because I've found that, like, I've sent a few mixes to certain people just on, like, hey, man, like, you seem cool. Like, you you feel like ever, like, swapping mixes? Like, we'll just, like, be our each other's extra set of ears a couple times. And it's kind of cool to have that, you know, between certain people that you can trust that aren't going to, like, leak mixes out. So do you have your own little mixing mastermind? Yeah, I have a couple guys that, like, I'll, I'll share mixes with, and we all kind of, like, you know, we'll stream them to each other, and it's, like... You know, generally we have like pretty different mixing styles, but we both know how to judge each other's mix within like the, hey, here's the mix, like anything poking out to you that I'm missing because I've been so focused on like trying to bring out these fucking stackers that aren't mic'd that like I may have lost the plot on whether or not the fucking vocal actually sounds good. Can you just listen to this for me, you know? And then it's very nice to have someone that can just say like, Oh yeah, no, it sounds fine. You know what I mean? But not but not the type of person that's going to be like, "Oh, well, I think your low end sounds a little cloudy and I think the snare could have more attack." It's like, "Well, all right, like and I, and I was listening on my iPhone." Yeah, 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 totally, yeah. Oh, with the fucking iPod enhancement on. But you know, like I I think that but it's like all that being said is you need someone that kind of gets you and that understands your mixing style as well as understands that like chances are you've already got the mix kind of dialed and that's what the band wants, you know, or that is, that's your mixing style that like, say you're one of those dudes that like mixes with like a shit ton of top end or something, you know what I mean? Like you don't want someone that's going to, every mix you send them is like, I don't know, it sounds pretty bright to me. You know, it's like, well, yeah, that's just how I mix and that's why people come to me. I definitely had that for a little while. Like, uh, I probably sent them more mixes than they sent me. But, uh, <laughs> Are you saying that you were working more than they were? <laughs> no, hell, no, 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 no. This was I was sending mixes to Will Putney and to Andrew oh, okay. Wade. I I just think that my mixes were worse than theirs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just think that I had more problems. So I I just be like, Will, 
what the fuck <laughs> is wrong with my mix? And he'd be like, uh, yeah, I like the snare. It's artsy. And then uh, I'd be like, oh, that means the mix fucking sucks. Right, yeah. No, 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 no. He, I would be like, look, I'm tearing whatever's left of my hair out on this. Uh, I feel like it's very muddy. I don't know if it's my hearing or what. You just listen to it and tell me if anything strikes you as terrible right away. Right. And just like him or Andrew would give me that immediate feedback and uh, you know, they, they, they wouldn't fill me up with bullshit. And also, this is interesting. When you're doing this, you have to be you have to make sure that you do trust the person totally to tell you the truth because some guys will tell you that it's good when it's not good, not because they're afraid, but because they don't want you to get better. Oh, totally. Because yeah. they don't want you competing with them. Right. So you need to make sure that the people who you send the mixes to feel very solid in who they are as people. Yeah. Yeah, as well as, you know, being able to not, I guess trying to be impartial to it as well, you know, because obviously if you're, you know, say you're a, say you're a metal guy, you know, and I'm sending you like a, uh, like a singer songwriter track, you know, and it's like, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, if you're, if you're, I guess it's part of being well-rounded, isn't it? Like if I send you a singer songwriter track as a metal guy, you, you, Chances are you might think the kick and snare are going to be not, you know, punchy and attacky enough. But within different genres, you just have to be uh, aware of that. And I think I don't know how this got back onto me, but like I feel like I've done a pretty, <laughs> I feel like I've done a pretty good job as far as like trying to diversify myself. Because it's your podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. episode. It all go, it all goes back yeah. to you. I'm such a fucking scatterbrain. I don't know if you've noticed that. I like, just go all over the place, but. Yeah, um, I've 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 gotten to do pretty like a lot of like different style uh, records, like Mariachi El Bronx, and then uh, which was fucking rad. But the cool thing about that was like they actually didn't want like a mariachi dude doing their second record because they the whole point was like we want like we're all like punk guys. We want it to sound like we're like a rock band playing mariachi music, we don't want to sound like a bunch of mariachi guys. So it was kind of interesting for me to kind of give it more of a a rock-like impact, I guess. Okay, now you've lost me. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, mariachi, what? Yeah. Have you not heard that record? No. Dude, so so the guys in the Bronx, right? You know that band? Yes. Okay, so the guys in the Bronx got kind of like... I guess just kind of bored with making regular Bronx stuff. It's like, man, okay, we're like, you know, three three records deep into Bronx. Like, what else can we do? You know, like, it's just punk music. We need to do something else. So they kind of like created this alter ego called Mariachi El Bronx. And uh, they do like original mariachi songs. But they sing in English and they're fucking awesome. So I got to mix, I, I produced an EP for them, and then I got to mix their second record. But they have three records out as Mariachi El Bronx. They're rad. I would definitely recommend <laughs> checking it out. So when you send this to your little mix, uh, your mix cabal, yeah, they still give you good feedback? Oh yeah, totally. Because it's like, you know, it's, it's about taking yourself out of the situation, like taking your taste out of it, you know? Like you can't really say, like, so say like, 
uh, like a professional mixer named Phil who is like super sample heavy and their snare drum always sounds like a like shotgun. Like obviously that person is going to tell me no matter what mix I send that my snare is not punishing enough. You know what I mean? Like, and so you can't really trust that person to, to give you good advice on whether or not your drums are good. You know what I mean? Like, hey, is my snare hitting hard enough? No, it's not because it doesn't sound like a fucking Mack truck plunging through your house. So the type of stuff that I'm looking for is more just like, hey, what do you think about this mix? Does it sound fine? Does it sound like me? All right, cool. And generally, like, we know each other well enough that it's like, like, I've sent him mixes, my buddy Jeremy, a, a bunch of times, and he's like, oh, interesting. It doesn't really sound like a bow mix to me. It's like, uh, it sounds good, but it doesn't sound like you. And, and for a while, I kind of like went through a long streak of trying not to sound like me, which sounds funny, but I think it came from a couple friends of mine, like kind of stereotyping my mixes. And I tried to fight that for a while because uh, I guess getting back to the whole how did Seosin affect your life and career and all that. After, you know, after like a year of getting a thousand like terrible bands with a terror, like overly technical, like screamo bands with a singer that sounds like a girl that can't sing. It's like, <laughs> you just want to kill yourself. And it was just like, man, I can't take this anymore. I gotta like get out of doing the genre. Like if I do, if I get one more demo with a band saying they want to sound like me, like I'm gonna kill myself. So I tried to really like diversify and do other types of music. Oh, so this was after Seosin became known. You got all the Seosin clones. Yeah, it was terrible. Oh my god. Yeah, you know what I mean. And because it was every band, it was like, hey, yeah, like we're huge fans of Seosin. I'm like, oh fuck, I already know you suck. Like just by saying that, you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, so. But you know, now I think I've recently gotten like a, a lot of bands that were fans that don't suck, which is cool. Now I forgot where, now I really forgot what I was talking about. Well, do you think that, well, there's so many different topics at this point that we've gone Crazy on. Crazy person. I'd like, I'd like to go on <laughs> to the the original, just got one of the original topics. I want to talk about more about how Seosin changed your recording style and whether you felt like you got a lot better at that point. And did you get to ever work with any really incredible producers that were like way better than you as a result um yeah so like on on i guess on the big like uh say and self-titled record we did that record with howard benson and the reason why we went with him is because i was a huge fan of that record blindside silence and uh pod satellite i thought that they sounded incredible little did i know that CLA was like a huge piece of that puzzle. And when we got into the studio, I was I was excited. And I feel like every time you go into the studio, especially if you're like uh, an engineer or wanting to be a producer, it's like, I feel like they say this about every aspect of life. You got to be able to learn something from every experience you're in, even if it's what not to do. So... Like one of the things that I really took away from that experience is uh, like I remember specifically on one part of a song, 
I was telling the engineer that like I wanted to have like kind of like a filtered guitar part. Like, hey, we just like high and low pass the guitar for this part because the whole band's going to cut out and it's going to go to this guitar. And I want it to sound a little bit smaller so when the band comes back in, it just sounds that much huger. And he's like, oh, that's, yeah, that's like a stupid idea. The whole, like, the whole band's cutting out. We got to make sure this guitar is like super bright so that the audience knows that it's like something special. And in my mind, I'm like, what kind what? it's like what kind of idiot is gonna like have the whole band drop out and not know that something just happened like do we re- like how much do I have to hold the audience's hand to like tell them what's going on so I showed him a copy of uh, the blood record past the flask where I had done that like kind of filtered it out for a section during like some chugs and the engineer like I didn't tell him that I had produced it but he like I remember it specifically, and it was I was like so mad. So I played it for him, and he was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Like, uh, and like he, I, his, you know, like when you can tell someone's state of mind is like, "Oh wow," like they're actually impressed. And then he's like, "Oh, who produced this?" And I said, "Oh, well, I did it." And instantly he was like, "Oh, well, I guess it's not bad for a demo." And I was like, "Oh, you fucking <laughs> asshole," you know. <laughs> then, but it was like, but it was like that's the type of like like mentality that was there throughout the whole recording process of like you guys are just children and I'm here to collect my fucking $1,300 a day like engineering fee you know I did learn some cool stuff like when we were tracking guitars uh, he used like a 57 and 414s on every single guitar cab (laughs) he never moved the mics he just mic'd up like four different cabs stuck the mics on there never moved them or never like looked at them but the trick was is that he would use different cabs for different parts. And then as far as blending the 414 in, the the area that I had always struggled with when blending multiple... Wait, wait, how many cabs? There was four cabs and he had two... Okay. He had two sets. So he had two speakers mic'd. Each speaker had a 57 and a 414 on it. So he had like... Lots of options. Yeah, lots of options. But what he would do is he would just have like... You know, basically, he would pull up on the console like, "Okay, here's speaker one, here's 57," and then he would just barely tuck the 414 under there, just to where you could feel a little bit of bottom and a little bit more top. But it, but the main character was the 57, so it was, and that was something that I had kind of struggled with before because I had always just done a 57 because it was like that's the easiest thing not to fuck up, and I always felt like my guitar tone was cool with just the 57. I've never felt the need to add more, but when I did add more, it was like, I don't know, I feel like it's getting a little unclear and like a little weird sounding, even though everything was always in phase. But for him, what he showed me was the trick was just barely having it there so it's more of a perceived hugeness, and then you can mute that 414, and the, and like the, like the tone doesn't change, you know what I mean? It's just a little bit extra on the top and bottom. So that was something cool that I learned. Does it add a little bit of that roominess thing uh, at all? It was more or? just like a it was more just like a loudness button. You know what I mean? Like it was like interesting. Okay. Like which is funny because if you think about metal guitars, it's like you're usually high and low passing them. <laughs> so so it's like it, it just adds all the extra stuff that you want to high and low pass. So uh, it was it was kind of weird, but they did actually end up sounding pretty huge. So then he would get that blend on that one speaker and then like mark with tape where those faders are and then just move on to the next speaker, get a blend, boom. And then so like 
each pair of faders would go out to like, you know, bus one or two, whatever. And then out of the bus, it would go into an LA two-way followed by a Poltec and then into Pro Tools. So then basically for... Do you remember at all what they were doing? The Or was that too, too long ago? No, same exact thing. He was boosting more top and more bottom, which... On the Hughes and Kettner amp, I get why you would boost more top, but there's so much bottom on that triamp, um, especially the low mids, that I don't know why you would want to boost more bottom end unless where he was miking the cone was like just so far toward like inside of the dust cap, maybe. But I remember the guitar sounded pretty good because we had we had uh, pulled up a couple of their amps, and I thought they sounded okay. But then I insisted that we try the triamps, and he was instantly like, "Oh yeah, this sounds sick." Um, but it was very com- comparable to the diesel, uh, what is it, the VH4 that they had there. So um, we did like a test between the Triumph and the VH4, and it was by the way that they were miking everything, the difference between the VH4 and the Triumph was very little. I felt like the VH4 was just a little bit more compressed sounding, but as far as like over tonal characteristics within the track, it was like swappable. See, it's interesting. I feel like with a lot of guitar tones, and this is this is after years and years of being a kind of a guitar tone Nazi and involved in yeah guitar tone Nazi activities. I've come to realize that once you get a mix on it, lots of guitar tones are swappable. Oh yeah. Sorry guys. Sorry. Right. Sorry gods of guitar tone, but it's true. You just crushed their <laughs> dreams. Yeah. I mean, I'm that same. It's, I'm that same way with gear too. I mean, like I have a lot of cool pieces of gear, but like. I sold all, like, I used to have a bunch of API stuff and then, like, Neve stuff. I sold all my APIs just so I could go all Neve because I was sick of having, I was sick of wasting time on, like, like oh, I wonder what's going to sound best on this little, like, guitar part. Should I try the API preamp or the Neve preamp? You know, and it's like, fuck, I just wasted 15 minutes and, like, this guitar player can barely play his guitar. Like, why am I worried? <laughs> why am I worried about like the preamp? It makes like one percent, you know. And by the time I have to do all the shit that I'm gonna have to do to it, it's gonna make zero percent. So now I just have all Neve, and I don't think about what to use, and I just do it, and it sounds awesome. So, yeah, I'm I'm all for like eliminating any sort of extra decision. Um, because I think it's easy... Eliminate the bullshit. Yeah, I think it's so easy for all of us to get caught up in that analysis paralysis because it's so much fun. You know, you're like, oh, cool, like, which bus compressor should I use? Oh, what about this? And you're, like, sitting there, like, trying to find differences because I think there's some sort of, like, complex that, like, you know, it's like a... It's like who has, like, the bigger balls of, like, who can find the bigger difference of, like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, definitely, that one's way more, like, oh, feel the, the 250 punch that the that the Alan Smart is adding, you know, and you're like, dude, this make, you're talking about, like, a 1% difference. It fucking doesn't matter at all, you know? It's like, I... Well, the, I say this all the time. When people read about these differences yeah. and they haven't used the gear, yeah. when you read about it or you hear about it in forums or in interviews, lots of people that are inexperienced think that these are massive differences no so they try to emulate those those tone hunts yeah too but in reality we're talking about these micro differences that you can barely even hear in most cases yeah and not not worth it so but but we we digress what uh (laughs) let's talk more about cool cool shit that that Howard Benson was doing. I want to hear more about this. Oh, yeah. 
Um, let's see. Oh, oh, one thing that really pissed me off was uh, so I have I have the I have the multi tracks for that record, and um, so when we were getting drum sounds, he had um, KSM thirty twos on top of the toms, and then fifty sevens on the bottom. And as we were going through, like, dialing and drum sounds, of course, me, like, being the nerd of the band, I was in the control room, like, listening to stuff while, like, the rest of the guys were, like, out in the live room just kind of, cool, when can we get started? So I was, like, listening to the tones because I was so curious about it. Like, okay, well, like, here's my chance. I'm finally in, like, I'm in the studio with, like, you know, one of the, at least what, what should be, like, the best engineers and the best producers, like, in the rock world right now. You know, like, they're all doing, like, you know, all the top ten huge records. I want to see what they're doing compared to me and find out, like, the ways that I should be improving or, like, where, what I can pull from it. And it was all, like, the biggest bummer is that they weren't really doing anything different. Um it was that should should be a bummer <laughs> should be confirmation well yeah but when you're trying to it, it it is confirmation but also when you're looking for the when you're trying to find an excuse of like why those records sound so much better than yours and you can't find the excuse it's a bummer you know <laughs> you're like you're like fuck they're doing like all the same shit i'm doing but for whatever reason it sounds better but anyways all that being said when we were dialing in the drum sounds i was like really disappointed like the tom leakage uh, the cymbal leakage coming through the toms was just like absolutely ridiculous to me i brought it up and uh howard just straight up lied to me and like again treated me like a child and told me that the he's like yeah, you don't. You've never really made a real record before, and uh, Chris Lord Algae mixes all of my records. And the thing you need to understand is that the tom leakage, because we're using KSM thirty twos, the cymbal leakage coming through these microphones sounds so good that sometimes CLA mutes our overheads and just uses our tom mics as overheads. And I was like. You have to think that I'm a fucking idiot to believe that. Like, cymbals never sound good coming through tom mics. Like, that, to me, cymbals coming through tom mics destroys my mix, like, instantly. So, all that being said, like, it was just something that was eating at me, like, throughout the entire recording process. And then, once I got the tracks back from CLA... I got like his backup session. So it actually has all of his samples that he used on there, like printed to a track. And I'm like looking at the Tom mics and they're all chopped, like direct, <laughs> like they're all like quarter note Tom beats chopped, like exactly on the bar, just like hard cuts, you know? And at that point I was like, oh, that motherfucker, I knew he was lying to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, another something. We love you, Howard. Yeah, <laughs> I actually I, I saw him recently at an In Flame show, and he just straight up big timed me. I was like, "Hey, Howard, what's up?" And he's like, "Uh," and just like it completely ignored me. <laughs> I feel I feel weird because I have a meeting with him in a few weeks. But uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, if you're, if you're listening, Howard, uh, we love you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love you too. I just wish you would say hi to me. Um, yeah. uh, but his engineer Hatch was fucking super awesome, and I learned I, I probably learned more from him just because he was so nice and like was willing to explain stuff to me, which I really appreciated. Um, but then something really cool that we did on bass was a very similar thing that I've seen like you guys 
uh, talking about, like where you're splitting the bass into uh, you know multiple kind of like multi-band uh, tracks. Um, it's a similar thing, but it's more like a, on top of the the full bass spectrum. So some, the the uh, bass the bass tone. What's that? I, I I'm I'm like oh okay yeah oh, okay. So <laughs> oh, it was kind of oh. cool, but it but it does involve hardware. So. And it involves a specific cabinet. So what we did is, so the bass tone was a pretty uh, elaborate setup. So we had the bass DI going into an Ampeg Classic. That uh, before, the, so let's see, before the the Classic, there was a Tube Screamer that had like a Keeley mod on it of Chris's that had like the the low end filter taken out so that it retained all of the bass. Because I don't know if you've ever tried it in the studio, but like as soon as you put the tube screamer on a bass guitar, it's like, oh, I just lost all my subs. So <laughs> you, you, uh, um, 450 on down, yeah, see you yeah, just gone. See you later. Um, <laughs> but, but so we had this mod done and it was, it was fucking awesome. So you can use like, you can get that grit and that extra compression out of the, the, the SVT, but without losing your subs, and then so that went into the into the uh, the SVT that was mic'd up with like say like a I don't know like a 421, a 57, and then some other like maybe like a FET 47. Those were all blended into probably that same kind of like you know LA2A and then the Poltec um, hitting the Pro Tools. So that was one track. Um, then it was the DI of the guitar post Tube Screamer, I believe into a Marshall, like a uh, hot rotted plexi of some sort that was going through a Marshall cab that was mic'd up with just whatever guitar cabs, uh, mics that were out there. So probably like the 57 and the 414, same thing going through like the old LA-2A uh, Pultec. And then for the subs track, there's, you know, the Ampeg SVT4 Pro Yes. Um, so that. Yes. Yeah. So that <laughs> that has a feature on it where you can buy amp using that amp. So what we would do is we would take the crossover point and put it in buy amp mode and cross it over all the way down to like a hundred hertz or whatever it, the lowest it would go, and then we would send that sub signal just to the Ampeg. What it was like the 410 Pro or something like that. That was really ugly. Ampeg cabinets that existed for a while and they were like super overbuilt um, and they had like a metal grill on the front with kind of like I know what you're talking about yeah. yeah and they had four ports on the front at the bottom so they were a ported cab uh, with no tweeter I believe and uh, we stuck a Beta 52 inside the port and that um, I can play it for you guys like when you come over and that's like if you mute that track it's like oh my god that is like, it's almost like the Waves Low Ender plugin, except you know how like, uh, or Low Air, you know, like if you put Low Air on a track, it's like all of a sudden just like that bottom octave that exists um, that wasn't there before. But the problem yeah. with Low Air is like when you go to some notes, it's like all of a sudden it's just like super loud and just yeah. un uncontrollable but then you try to compress it and like it's really hard to get right without automation or like getting flutter in there so this subtrack was just like ultimate constant low end no matter no matter where you were on the neck um it was just awesome like consistent low end that was just smashed um and that was like a really cool thing that uh i've used a couple times but i've kind of gotten away from doing something like that and 
I just kind of use like a like the NS10 sub mic now, and I think it's pretty cool on a bass cab. So you actually mic up bass cabs? Yeah, I mean it depends on the band. I like I said, I do so many different types of bands that some bands care about kind of like I guess I'll call it like a dog and pony show. Like you know, there's just pe- people. Some people care that like you're actually recording with a real amp and a real cab and real microphones and you know they think that axe effects is stupid and if you're recording with like an amp sim then you're just like not professional you know um and i used to be that way big time um i mean i remember i mean joey i mean i i mean <laughs> you know here here's a true confession and an apology i mean i can't even tell you how many times i've like when I, probably around that time when say it was like 2006 or whatever like there was so many i think it was we were on tour with devil wears prada i think yeah and and you Uh had and you had done their record and uh i want to say i think the drummer's name is david right uh daniel or daniel yeah we 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 would always call him larry and he would get really mad but it was kind of like our inside joke (laughs) yeah Um, same thing here yeah (laughs) and uh i think he was telling us how like it could be like you didn't let him record kick drum and like you kind of like muted all the tom mics so that he he could sample replace them later what whatever the story was it was like i just remember being like oh what a fucking idiot like this dude doesn't know how to record drums <laughs> like oh that's cheating what a fucking jerk you know and like <laughs> i remember thinking like oh man that is so amateur but then it's like now here i am like you know 10 years later or however many years later like on the seosin record and it's like you know we didn't have any of the 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 songs like weren't fully written yet and we, I actually didn't let my drummer record kick drum because I didn't know all of the patterns you know so it's like here I am like now years later using like a similar technique maybe not for the same purpose or whatever maybe it was but still it was just like you know time goes by and then you realize like oh wow I was the actually the asshole for being so ignorant to the the benefits of using uh, non non-conventional methods you know and it's like right, after yeah. a while i think i was telling y'all like on our first conversation it's like man you kind of it's like for so long i was like one of those guys that was like oh you're not a fucking hunter unless you kill a bear with a fucking like with a knife you know what i mean and now it's like and now it's like here i am this fucking indian and it's like i'm trying to fight a war against people that have fucking like laser guided fucking night vision drones attacking me with chemical warfare and i'm sitting on the ground with a fucking knife you know and it's like it's like dude you just you just can't compete with like all the new technology that like you know guys like you and everyone have been on the forefront of like like taking advantage of you know uh whereas like you know that was one of the first times where i kind of felt like an old guy you know where it was like oh pro tools is fucking bullshit man you need to record the tape and it's like man like now here i am i'm like uh no fuck you we're not doing tape because you're not good enough to do it and two like we don't have time to go to tape and three you don't have the budget for tape and four it's gonna sound just as good if not better because all the shit that can go wrong with it so yeah it's just it's crazy how well what changed like what uh because some guys still haven't seen the light like well what what happened to where you left let go of the, the I guess the the pointless elitist. Yeah, ways. yeah. I don't know, man. Like uh, maybe just 
I guess maybe growing up a little bit, you know, like not caring like what people think as much. And then just realizing that like, man, like at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, it's cool to talk about like, you know, you always read in those magazines where it's like, oh man, like, well, the whole drum sound of the fucking Coldplay record is because this dude stuck a microphone inside of a fucking dildo and put it in like a fucking trash can in the corner of the room, and that's our whole drum sound. It's like, well, <laughs> chances are the mixer probably muted that, you know? And it's like, yeah, that's a cool, <laughs> that's a cool story, but like, at the end of the day, all you really care about is how it sounds, you know? Like, yeah. I- I think uh, one of the things I started to figure out somewhere in my career was like, <clears throat> you you still need to create those moments in the studio, no matter how pointless they are, because right. it does create those stories and it creates that like talk on the on the road and like there was always stuff happening in my place like because it was just like the way it was set up like there was no bathroom so everyone <laughs> you know everyone always talked like oh yeah the place where you pee outside or like. Oh yeah, one time I took a shit in that dude's yard. Like, there's just always these little stories, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, dude, sorry. Uh, is it like how how X-rated can we get all this? Is is it bad? Oh, it's we can do whatever. Yeah. Just, oh. I mean, nothing. Nothing, nothing racist. racist. Okay. Oh yeah. man. <laughs> uh, you know, you know. Let's 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 wait for like a private conversation. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Just, just yeah, really, get, remind me to tell you the story about go poop it out on the lawn. Okay. Oh, dude, we want to hear this. Well, it's. I mean, it's not about we've me. Talk, so, we've talked about piss drinking. Oh God. So, so my brother. I mean, I shouldn't. Well, none of the well, people he knows. Let me, let me finish my point, and then you yeah, can yeah, tell sorry. your story. <laughs> I was just gonna say, um, it's just as important though to realize the final goal of what you're doing is like entertaining people and i'd always have bands in talking about like their next tour or you know we'd be working on an album and they're talking about like something else that has nothing to do with the album so i always maintain that perspective that like it's not gonna matter if if your actual piece of wood hitting this plastic is what's coming through the speaker like the little 14 year old girl who buys your merch at your show doesn't give a shit so totally I always kept both things into perspective. Yeah. Well, and what's funny too, though, is like, I, f- I found it so ironic that like I had that mentality because here I was like recording like bands out of my garage, like sample placing, sample replacing the drums anyways. So it was like all, you know, at least the stories I was hearing is like, all you were really doing is just taking it one step further and eliminating all the extra effort that was like pointless that I was doing, you know, like, okay, well, why am I spending so much time getting it to sound good to get go if I already know I'm going to replace it, you know? So (laughs) all I was really, it's like, I think I finally realized like, oh, I'm just actually just, it's a lot of wasted time trying to make something sound right. If you know, it's going to get deleted at the end of the day. Um, Anyways, I just found it interesting that I was like, that I would be the person that would be like speaking so poorly of it when I was like basically doing the same thing, you know? Um, yeah. But I do have a, a, like a love hate with samples though, you know, like I, like drum samples to me are kind of like tuning, like vocal yeah. tuning and editing. Like they have to be there almost, but I just, I can't stand hearing them. You know, like if I hear drum samples, like, like on a snare roll and it sounds like a machine gun to me, like, 
my mind just gets completely taken out of the song, you know, like, so, Oh yeah, of course. You know, and it's, it's like, that's something I, I still try to do. And, you know, but it's like, man, back when we were starting, it was like, you know, you had to either do them all by hand to get it, to get it right. You know what I mean? And it's just like, fuck, it takes me three. It's like, cool. When can we, when can we hear a mix? Well, there's 12 songs. So it's going to take me about 12 days to lay in the snare sample. So, uh, you know, I'll see you in two weeks when I have the whole kit done, you know? And by the way, there's a, (laughs) there's a ton of double kicks. So that's going to take me an extra day. So Yeah. yeah. Just like talking about like I guess kind of being a little bit arrogant like uh, and thinking how like your shit doesn't stink like I remember one point specifically in the band at kind of the height of the career when uh, I was just like sitting somewhere like in an office and I had accidentally kicked over my water bottle and one of the girls there like was like oh my gosh I'm sorry let me get that for you and I was like oh yeah cool no problem. And then, like, it hit me, like, maybe, like, 20 seconds later that uh, it was like, oh, shit, like, I knocked over my water bottle, this girl went to pick it up, apologized for me knocking over my water bottle, and I saw nothing wrong with that. You know, it was like, wow, I think I've gotten to a point where I really need to, like, put myself in check, you know, and, like, start trying to be, like, a normal human being again. Because, like, it's so crazy how... You know, even as like producers, you know, we're constantly trying to like, uh, like build up the band, you know, and especially like when you're establishing a rapport with a singer, trying to get like the best performance out of the singer, it, it's like so important to like really pump them up and get everything good out of it, but without being so ridiculously over the top that like you're just lying to them but it's crazy how being in a band you know and like with management and labels and everything you almost and even like record reviews and everything you start believing everything that people are telling you and I found that uh, it was something that I really need to, to get out of and I think it actually really applies to Produce. Probably healthy. Yeah, one hundred percent. It was definitely not healthy at the point at the at the height of the band when it was like like I was saying like the, things like that would happen. It was like I saw nothing wrong with it, you know. So it it, it was like man, something's got to change with the way I'm I'm viewing things. And then I also found that it was helpful in production too because if you start same way like when bands you know it's like man you can't really believe the positive reviews without the negative ones too, you know? And like, if you start reading like reviews of records you've done about like, you know, how great they are or how bad they are, you know, it's like, I think that's kind of an unhealthy thing, at least for me. Like, I don't really like reading like the reviews. I mean, it's, it's definitely like nice to hear like, oh man, like the Moose Blood record just got nominated for an AP award or like, you know, everyone likes this record or they like that record, but it's, it's, it's hard to, to, to take that I don't stuff. Read that, I don't read that shit for the same reason that totally, you just right? said. Yeah, because it's so you, easy. You, you find the one you find the one person that says like, oh man, I thought the mix sucked. You're like, oh God. Like that one person is all it took to tear down that whole house of cards that you were feeling great about, you know? And I feel like it's a, kind of a bad thing because I had a friend like tell me, um, and this is going back to the whole like characteristic of like the bow mix um i had a friend tell me like oh yeah like bow the boat like just give me the bow mix on this thing you know like just like the huge kick and snare with like big bottom and i'm like 
oh man, is that really like what my mix is? Like, are my kicks and snares too loud? Like, oh man, like, should I try to <laughs> should I do that? Like, like I don't want to be pigeonholed into just one sound because I want to do a whole bunch of different types of music, you know? And you know what I mean? It's like, you get into that whole like, oh man, like, should I change? Should I do this? I spent a couple years like trying to not mix like Bo and it was really hard. And I feel like some of the mixes I did during that time like weren't my best. And then now I'm just at a point where it's like, Fuck it, I'm just gonna mix by my gut and I'm mixing so much faster and feeling so much better about the mixes. And uh, I find that like when you're mixing against your gut, like trying to do something that's like not what you would instinctually do, it's so much more difficult to mix. Like if you're trying to like like we've all done like those test mixes before. I remember doing a test mix and it was like me. And uh, I think one of the other mixers was like David Bendeth. It was like instantly the notes I got back from the band was like, dude, we love your mix, but like we just want your drums to be like more punishing like like David Bendeth. And I was like, oh, like, okay, fine. I'll try to make that happen. And then as soon as I started doing that, my mix just got worse and worse because like that wasn't like the way that I mix. So I think at that point, that's when I realized like I just got to do my mix and because if you're trying to chase like what you think people want out of the mix, you're always going to fail. Whereas like if you just it's a you go into a weird neurotic head. Yeah, yeah. It's too. like it's like trying to reference like a mix that's already been done and mastered, and you're trying to like reference that mix. And then like I've done it before too, where you're like so focused on like oh man, like I need to get like my guitars to just be so punishing like this record. And then you get your guitars there, and then for whatever reason, you're so hyper-focused on a certain element of that reference track's mix, and then you come back to it the next day, and you're like, dude, this sucks so bad. Like, it's not even close. And the rest of the mix completely suffered. And then you go back to, like, your previous mix that was your own mix, and it's like, oh, this feels a thousand times better. Like, why did I even try to do something different? So speaking of mixes, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing this month on LMX. (laughs) Let's get back to reality. <laughs> well, I I just think that that's a oh, good totally, segue yeah, right yeah. there. I apologize for being such a scatterbrain too. Jeez. Oh, dude, you're <laughs> amazing. <laughs> don't ever apologize. Don't apologize for being you. Uh, you're uh, you're awesome. But we have been yeah. talking for a little while, and we haven't even right. mentioned it. So I think that that we should talk about it a little bit. Like what? First of all, you know, you're probably sick of hearing this, but it's a it's a big deal that Anthony's on the yeah, vocals, yeah. and for for me that was that it was great because I love his vocals and I love that sound that you guys have. And for a lot of our audience, this is a big deal. And so, wanted to know like what what are they getting themselves into? What uh what should we be thinking about? What's in store? Um. Well, you're gonna get. I think you're gonna get some pretty decent drum tracks. They're not amazing. But damn good drummer though. Yeah, I mean he he's 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 pretty good, which is which is so funny though because he hates I don't want to say he hates our music, but he uh he he <laughs> hates the drums that we make him play. Like he wishes so badly that the drummer for the strokes would die so that he could join the strokes and just and just play like <laughs> like that's all he wants to play. We have to like like chain him up and make him play like all these intricate parts. Chris and I uh, kind of like write 
everything. Like all of our demos are like pretty much a hundred percent thought out before we kind of like show them to the rest of the guys. Um, and it's like, we leave a few things kind of like, okay, well this can add some extra, you know, it's like, Hey, I did this crazy hi-hat pattern, but like, if you can't play it, like since I programmed it and it may be impossible to play, I don't know, then feel free to like kind of change that. But that's the vibe we want over this section. So yeah, I mean, he, he's sick. He hits, he hits really hard, um, which is funny because I don't know if you've experienced it, but sometimes a drummer can hit too hard. I have experienced it, and sometimes it will choke out the cymbals, for Dude, instance. Dude, it'll choke out the cymbals, it'll choke out the snare, it'll choke out anything they touch. And I have, um, so on this particular recording, I went with a little bit higher snare tuning than I would have like liked, and I think I used a slightly thicker head. I normally would have loved to use like a like a CS um, on the snare. I think we used Emperors on the on the toms, and then I didn't I did not track kick drum on this because we were still kind of in the writing phase when we had tracked the drums. I kind of knew what they were supposed to do from the demos, but we weren't quite a hundred percent sure on some of the rhythmic patterns how they were going to line up with the vocals. And let me uh, just say that the the rum the rums, rums. <laughs> the drums sound nice and roomy and natural. Yeah, that's what I was that's what I was going so for. It's, it's cool. It's cool to show that like you can't just. Even if you don't record kick drums, that doesn't mean you have to go with a, a faked out drum sound. Right. Well, the the heart the the one of the biggest challenges, or am I am I should I talk about the challenges right now, or is that something later? Well, maybe hint at them, but don't. We're going to talk about it a lot on Nail okay. the Mix, um, so don't go too All far right. into it. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest challenges was I was trying to. We I feel like we've kind of like rode the fence on like you know somewhat metal production or it's like we're influenced by metal but we're definitely not like cool enough to be a metal band like our riffs sound cool but they're not actually that hard to play at all so i i was trying to kind of appeal to like keeping like the kind of emo and rock side of our influence but while also you know, making a recording that was kind of clear, but I also just love big rock records. So it was kind of a, an experiment for me. I, I kind of like using my own band as an, as a guinea pig because then if I fuck it up, then it's just kind of like us to be mad at. There's not like a whole separate group of people that's going to be mad at me. So I always use my own band as a <laughs> guinea pig. Um, it was also one of the first records that I kind of used... Uh, Axe effects, like as all of the guitars. Oh, wow. And Those are Axe Yeah, they're Axe effects. And I feel like I did not the best job on them. <laughs> like the guitar tones I get now, I've been using just like, I have like a 5150 and an 800, and I've been using this Two Notes Torpedo that I've made a couple IRs of like this Mesa cab that I really like. And I feel like the results I'm getting now are like a thousand times. Like if I were to, obviously, if I were to retrack a record that you've already tracked, you would do a thousand times better. But it was one of the first records where we did, where I did Axe Effects on everything because uh, Chris was tracking a lot of ideas at his house and then I was tracking a lot of ideas at my house. So it was the only way that I could think of, aside from using In The Box Sims, to, uh, to have the consistency of like, here's the part, fly it in, let's try this, let's try that. Um, so there was a lot of like remote stuff going on. So it was all Axe Effects. Even the bass was Axe Effects, even though uh, that patch that's, that was printed on there, I think there was a printed patch, right? 
I think so, yeah. I have like a way better patch now that sounds awesome. And uh, the, the, the vocals were recorded remotely. Anthony recorded those in Philly so he wouldn't have to be out here for two weeks away from his family. be able to stay home oh, okay. for that yeah fair enough and then what else what else do you know i don't always mix the tracks that get sent to us but uh i'm actually gonna mess around with the seosin track because i just love that song man and i think you guys are cool and love the vocals and awesome yeah so time for some audience questions i've got a few so Rodney Allenbaugh is asking, what was the biggest obstacle you had to face when recording Seosin's new album, Along the Shadow? When you guys recorded your self-titled with Howard Benson... Oh, that's a different question. Let's just go with, what was the biggest obstacle you had to face when recording the new album, Along the Shadow? I guess the biggest obstacle was not letting the, uh, like the anticipation affect anything that we were doing. I feel like that's any band. I, I feel like that's the the hugest obstacle that I see bands running into in the studio. There's they always let the anticipation of what they think. It's like, oh well, it's what we think the fans think they think they want out of our record, you know. And it's like, dude, you guys, there's no reason to try to anticipate that. Just do what you guys think is cool. So that was probably one of the, the biggest obstacles is not caring, is like turning off that care of whether or not we, you know, that feeling of whether or not we cared what people, if they were going to like it or not, as well as trying to do something that was uh, somewhat competitive, I guess, uh, sonically, but also trying to not be too similar with everything else that's out there. And again, too, you know, thinking back when we did Translating the Name, which was like the previous stuff that Anthony had sang on that was so long ago and recordings have come, you know, uh, galaxies since that period in time. I guess there was a little bit of pressure to make like a super polished, like punch you in the face record, but I really wanted to kind of keep us in an area that not really felt like old guys, but like more... Uh, kept us away from feeling like a, a younger generation band, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted it to still feel like a, I guess, like a rock record, but could kind of compete sonically a little bit with some of the newer records that were coming out. That makes sense. Okay, here's one from uh, Ryan Bruce, if you've heard of him. I know. Awesome. <laughs> What's, uh, yeah, Ryan, we love you. What's one thing that, has been the single best studio innovation or tool since tracking the first Seosin EP in 2003? I feel like this is a loaded question coming from Ryan. Um, be because I would say it's almost like YouTube. <laughs> like, literally, because like what we were talking about, like back then, like you couldn't get answers for anything. Now it's like, oh, how do I slide this track around but also keep the same pitch, but I also want to like slide it down an octave, convert it to MIDI and do this. Oh, that's simple. Let, let me have Steve from Oklahoma answer that question for you. You know what I mean? And it's like there's 10 tutorials on how to do it. So it's pretty amazing how anything you want to do now, I think it was like even yesterday, I was like mixing a, a band and like I didn't have like a flange effect. So it was like, Oh, Google, how do I make a flange effect out of stock plugins? You know, it's like, oh, well, you just do this, this, and this. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, 
cool. The answer is there, you know? So that's probably been like the hugest like help in getting over things. I don't know if you would call that a studio tool, but that that's probably the one thing that is. I think that's a fair right? answer, man. I mean, that's your answer, and it's a good one too because it changed my yeah, life. I mean, all the information—it's basically information and having it, at, and even Google too. Just being able to Google a question is like insane. Like, dude, oh, what is error four hundred four hundred four e in Pro Tools? Oh, oh, okay, got it, done, solved. Now I just do this, done. Now my computer won't crash anymore. The great answer, actually. I thought you were going to say the Kemper or something oh, like no. that. Oh, no. I mean, I, I mean, dude, a lot of the gear, like I was saying, I could kind of almost care less about. You know, I feel like I could make a kick-ass record on a Mackie. A lot mm -hmm. of this stuff is more just kind of like fun stuff to have. No, I, I like your answer. I think it's a great answer. So, uh, Azael Buendia Jaye is asking, do you use templates as part of your tracking and mixing workflows? And... How has your uh, workflow evolved since your first self-produced album? Okay, so I guess that's a two-part question. Um, so I don't yeah. use templates when I track, but I do use uh, something called Pro Tools Track Presets, which is kind of like a Pro Tools hack thing that you can find online. Basically what it is is within Pro Tools, you can, let's say you can set up a track, like I have... Uh, Great ones that I use is I have like for tracking guitars, right? So I'll have, I'll create two audio tracks. I have one track that's for like the cab or the, uh, you know, the, the final amp sound, whether it's coming from like a mic'd cab or a sim or whatever. So I'll have a track that gets recorded that and I'll have another track that gets the DI. Within that, the DI always goes out to the reamp box that's hooked up to another tuner. So what you can do is those two tracks, you can assign whatever plugins you want on those tracks. You can export those two tracks as a Pro Tool, as a new session in Pro Tools. But then if you move that session into your track, track presets folder and change the extension to a T, PTXT, now when you go to create new track, you'll have another folder in your create new track. It's like audio folder, MIDI, instrument, aux input, master. There'll be a new folder that says like whatever you want to title it as. So I have like things like tracking and mixing. So now I can just put like create new guitar track, tracking, done. And it'll create two new tracks and those are already assigned. So, I mean, it saves a few clicks, but I wouldn't really call it like a template, you know? It's more just kind of like the inputs and outputs and like maybe a plugin is on there, but there's nothing that really like saves me time as far as, uh, getting a sound up and running because like I said, I work on so many different genres that, you know, what works for like a metal band is definitely not going to work for like black audio yeah. or 888. Um, and then as far as mixing templates, I do have some things, uh, again, but like within that same realm, I, they're just called like track, presets and it's like not even a real thing so i just have these things where i can create new like uh i call it vocal processing so i create a new track and it already has like you know the pitch widener uh like a room verb you know an eighth note quarter note a dotted eighth and a half note delays that's it for the vocal side of things and then i have all my buses that are assigned with uh, uh outboard compressors on them 
and those all feed like an instrument bus and then those feed a uh, you know and then my all my vocals go to a vocal bus so I have like the busing as kind of a template but I don't really use uh, templates as far as like on the actual tracks yeah that makes because sense because I'm getting I, I use a busing yeah, template because too. I'm, I'm getting you know what I mean and it's like people's tracks are so fucked up that like you can't I can't even begin to use the template because what works on some guy like you know if you say like oh yeah on my kick drum i always suck out 400 well if he already sucked out 50 db at 400 like i might even have to add some 400 in there so you know i uh yeah yep. you get it aaron dutt was wondering what was bo's approach to the drum sound on the moose blood record blush i absolutely love the huge woody warm sound um so the snare drum is my it's a it's a seven by fourteen solid shell ash craviato snare drum. I kinda use it on a lot of records. Dude, ash drums, yeah. let me just say I've never heard of craviato drums, but my favorite sounding drums yeah. are ash. That is an under like underutilized, underrated, yeah. fucking amazing Yeah type of yeah. drum yeah they're, they're they're i mean the drum is great it's just got this extra thing to it what's funny is though is we use that same snare on the first moose blood record but just tuned up higher um and in a different room but on this record i wanted to go for more of like a almost like an aaron valentine kind of like i don't know it's to me his drums just kind of have like this kind of like thuddy kind of sound to him wait aaron yeah. valentine you know like you know what I mean? Okay. Like kind of like those old Good Charlotte type records where they're just kind of like, like they just have like this kind of like thuddy. That's how I would describe it. And when you guys come for Nail the Mix, I'll show you the room that I track the drums in, and like you won't even believe that that's where I did it. You'll think I'm lying because um, it's literally just like a super dead ISO booth that I open up the door to, and it's like a there's like a small little like airlock hallway type thing, and that's where my room mics were. But the approach was just trying to get something that was, uh, I guess, kind of competitive with like an uh, like a five seconds of summer type of vibe, like an Eric Valentine, just kind of like a real poppy, like deep sound. Because I, I actually tracked most of the record with the snare and with the drums tuned up a little higher, like a conventional rock sound, and then I felt like it was too aggressive. And then I ended up just coming in here one day and like replaying a song myself uh, with the drums tuned lower. And then when the drummer got in here, I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And then he was like, oh, yeah, that sounds sick. And I was like, cool, well, now you have to retract the first four songs because we are going to tune down all the drums. Yeah, yeah. But the way we did that record was rad. We actually did a song a day. So the drummer would come in in the morning at uh, 9 a.m. We would track drums from 9 to 10, and then uh, I would edit from 10 to 10.30. Guitar player would come in, lay down rhythm tracks, and then the bass player would come in, lay down bass. Then we would do vocals, and then we would do leads, and then we would finish at 7 p.m. every night. And it was a song a day. That that sounds like the great, a great way That's to record. Best. It really makes you like get bummed out at how hard metal records are <laughs> they really are um okay here i don't i'm not gonna get to all of michael's questions because he's got like a novel but uh 
Michael's saying. And how the hell does Michael not have a last name on Facebook? What? The artist known as Michael. <laughs> so, all right. First of all, I just love the work Bo puts out, especially everything he has done with Seosin. He is just the sickest dude. I have so many questions. I'll just have to let them pour, but I totally get it if you have to cut them. Sorry for the long post. He's excited, Bo. Oh, so, um, I think I remember hearing somewhere that when you were recording, translating the name, Anthony's vocal lines and or lyrics were improvised to a large degree in the studio during recording. If so, how did you approach writing, producing the vocals on the fly? Is there any advice you can give on refining vocal lines during the process? Um, yeah. So I've told the story before. So that, so on translating the name, Anthony flew out to kind of like just lay down vocals, like to see if it was a good fit. And it was almost like pre-production. You know, like he was just kind of laying down stuff that he had. And then uh, I was throwing out ideas at him and we would kind of just vibe off each other. And then he went home. I think he only had like a couple days here and we like did the whole EP. And then something that I normally do. I, so I normally have a singer like map out a song. Right. And then I'll go through and chop everything up. I'll not pay attention to any of the lyrics. I'll just strictly focus on melody and phrasing. I think that's really important. So a big reason why all the lyrics don't really make sense on that is because when I chopped up all of the, the vocals to so let's just say like your melody is like, you know, three blind mice and like, you know, I wanted it to be, you know, mice blind three. Um, so I would just chop those words and move them in Pro Tools to make that melody, even though now the lyrics don't make sense. So I just go in and make those melodies. And this is obviously this is before Melodyne too. So you couldn't really move things as easily. So I had to actually chop the words and move everything around. So I was treating it like pre-production, like, Hey, this is a cool line, but like, what if we started on this note here? You sang that note here. So I'm just going to pull it over there. But even though the lyrics don't make sense, whatever. So, but then we just ended up hearing it back and it was like, and then I ran it by Anthony, and he was like, dude, that's actually fucking sick, man. Let's just keep it like that. So that's how it ended up going. But as far as the process, yeah, I normally start with uh, the like the, the rough take, and the, I'll, I'll kind of see what the singer has to offer, and then I'll put in my two cents. Um, I'll restructure a lot of things. I'll have him try to sing things a certain way. I think that like rhythm and timing and the way that, the way that it, the timing and the rhythm interacts with like the actual words that they're saying. I'm sure you guys have ran into this problem a lot too. It's like, you know, when a, when a singer comes in and it's like a really impactful part of like the, the chorus or something and the lyric ends up being something like, you know, it's exactly, you know, and like that Lee and it, it lands like on the down note, you know, and you're just like, oh, like that has like no impact at all. Like, like we got to change that, you know, like we got to figure out a way to make that that boom, that one of that chorus to like hit hard. So you end up changing things around, maybe changing lyrics and like especially where 
the the syllables. It's, it's kind of like that that old like stupid saying like you got the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllables. It's kind of like that, but just for vocals. I hope that answers the question. Emphasis. Yeah. I, I remember right? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's like you wouldn't you wouldn't say like you know fuck you. You know you would say it like fuck you. You know. So it's like it's like dude, it doesn't come across that way in the song. It sounds stupid. You gotta like make the emotion match. So that's how I that's how yep. I attack it. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's one from uh, God. I am just just ruining myself with these names. Celery man. Chet Kettle Holse Larson. <laughs> okay, J E T I L. Dude, don't edit this, Brendan. Dude. I'm trying my hardest. You should here. have them uh, like your name. Your name is. You just should have tough. them type out like uh, just like the phonetic spelling of it next time. Yeah, or give yeah. or give me the YouTube link to how to pronounce the name. <laughs> I, I give that to people for me. Let's just make Siri read the name. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be amazing. <laughs> so so he's asking. I love the work you did on Emery's. You were never alone. I listened to the Break It Down podcast episode where you said something about not using as many drum samples and going for a more organic sound, not just on that record, but in general. What do you find most difficult in production or mixing when you're going for that sound compared to a more polished, edited-to-the-grid, drum-replaced sound? So I would say, with the exception of the Emery record, the biggest obstacle and the hardest thing is that when bands say they want a natural sound, they don't actually mean it. Because they're going to say that like they... Wise. They want to say that, like, they want to, they, and that's where, again, it comes to the kind of dog and pony show where it's like they want to know that they recorded nice, natural sounds, but then it's like, you know, you're recording like a singer songwriter band or like a, I mean, I, I, like a, I don't know, I can't even think of a band right now, but like just like a nice, mellow band. And then you hand them the mixes. And then they hand you, and then they're like, "Yo, our drums just aren't slamming." Like I'm mix, I'm listening to like the new of Mice and Men record, and like their drums are just way more slamming. And you're like, "Yeah, no shit, they are." Like, it's a totally different thing, and we're going for like a natural sound. Like, you didn't actually want a natural sound, did you? But that would be the biggest obstacle, as far as like, a lot of the times bands just don't actually know what they want. Um, and I'm not saying that like a producer knows best, but I think that it is our like because I don't agree with producers that uh, just like tell a band like what they should have for breakfast or like what their record should sound like. I think that it should kind of be like a a group decision. And like I believe that my my role is to help facilitate get the best compromise between what I think and what they think. So. A lot of the times I'm working really hard to facilitate what they want, but like I said, unfortunately, it's a lot of the times they don't know how to articulate what they want, and sometimes you have to really go through a lot of different choices and, and uh, different options before you actually find out that, like, you know, when the drummer said he wants a cracky snare, like, your version of cracky was, like, you know, say... 
or actually like he's like yeah man like yo I want like a really sick like huge snare drum and and I'm thinking like oh okay like Led Zeppelin or something and he's like no man like 311 and you're like whoa okay it's like what? that's not <laughs> what I thought as like huge and awesome but okay you know what I mean but you know what I mean that's like every band has like their own terminology of like what they think is is like it's like oh these are like my clean vocals or like these are my that's like my this is the break like and especially too like breakdowns like breakdowns is something totally different for a hardcore band compared to like like a different uh like mellow rock band you know like the breakdown might be the part where the song kind of falls apart and it's the bridge so yeah, the terminology is is another hard thing that you have to like, and I think being a producer, you have to like be able to be like a linguistics expert and be able to understand musical translator. Yeah, exactly. I think it was like our first yeah. episode. Yeah. That was uh, I was just thinking the same thing, Joey. For if anyone wants to hear more about that topic, our second podcast episode ever is called Musical Translator. It's a whole episode dedicated to just this. The uh, what you really have to be as a producer, yeah, like musical translator slash mind reader slash uh, psychologist, uh, <laughs> everything, yeah. babysitter. <sighs> um, hopefully that answers the question, right? Did, did I? Very expensive it, babysitter. It yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Final question, and this is back to Michael, the artist known as Michael, and you've probably answered this a million times, but it has to be asked. What are the differences in working with Anthony and Cove, and how did you approach such different types of singing? I mean, I'd say they have a lot of differences, but they also have a lot of similarities. Well, I, I don't know about that. Um, I mean, working with Anthony is just one of those... Like, you know, you, you get in the room with someone, and like when you get in with like a truly great singer, and like... Like their warm up take is is like them like fucking around on the mic and like doing like the joke lyrics, you know, and they're just like, Oh man, I'm gonna suck some dicks and you're like, Fuck, that was an amazing take. I'm totally with you. I believe everything you're saying. Let's go suck dicks. You know, like <laughs> and then it's like and then you have like another singer that is like talking about something like super profound and like something that like actually happened to you personally as a person, but you're just like man, I don't know. I'm not buying it. You know, like, so, I mean, Anthony is just one of those dudes where, you know, he can just say anything on the mic and you're just like, wow, that was incredible. Like, that's a keeper, you know? He's just one of those dudes that's like that great. And he's really able to convey, like, like the emotion of what he's doing, you know? And even a lot of the lyrics, they're so abstract. And it's like, somehow, like, you just, like... Yes, I want to fall from the pillows of the sky. Like I don't know what that means, but I'm on board. You know what I mean? Like he he just has that ability to to convince and he's I mean, I think that's what makes him excellent. And he really uh like gets on himself about uh making it great and perfect, you know? So working with him is just one of those things where all you're trying it's like that's like the level of like musician that we wish we could all work with where it's like your only job is to not fuck it up you know what i mean like you just have to make sure that like your gain staging is right that you're not clipping any preamps because the last thing you want to do is like on your first take before he actually sings he nails like the part perfectly you know and it's like you blew it because you had your preamp too hot or you were fucking something up you know what i mean like that's where with gr the great musicians, I think that's where you really need to have your skills just, like, on lock. 
because otherwise those are the people that are like going to come in and you're going to have this amazing take and you blew it off of some stupid technical thing that you should have had dialed in, you know, and, but now obviously working with Anthony now, I mean, he's just a, I mean, he's a pro, you know, whereas working with Cove, he was, I mean, he, you know, he had a lot going against him because, you know, he came from a Mormon family that like, he had never really like left his family, like for like an evening. I don't, I don't even think he had like spent the night at a friend's house type of type of thing. It was like very sheltered up until the point he like joined our band. So I think I think when we did Warp Tour together that was quite a difference. Yeah, totally. Whereas like Anthony was coming from like, you know, uh substance abuse and like fresh out of rehab. Just I mean two totally different people. You know what I mean? Like when I when, when I uh, like the way I met Anthony is there was this band called Days Away and uh they had recorded at a studio that I had been doing some work out of and they, um, I was talking to their singer, Keith, who plays in that band, Good Old War. And I was like, Hey Keith. And I was trying to actually kind of poach Keith. And I was like, yo Keith, do you have anybody that like might be into like joining a band? And I played him the instrumentals kind of sounds like you a little bit, you know, like anybody that might be wanting to join our band. And he's, and like, he just didn't get that I was trying to poach him, which I wasn't really very clear about anyways. But he was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like there's this dude I know, but uh, you probably don't want him because he's like straight out of rehab and he's kind of a crazy person. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I don't care if he can sing. He sounds perfect. So it was like, I mean, he sounds like the ultimate lead singer. But yeah, so I mean, it's like, yeah, two totally different like people, you know, as far as like kind of kind of is the ultimate yeah, lead singer. And, yeah, and like now of course like back to it, you know, just like ultimate lead singer. I mean everything I mean like I went and watched them at the shrine, which is like this huge venue here in LA and it was like every time I see him on stage, it's just like, man, he's so captivating. Um there's there was like a couple times on this last tour where I think I even like started forgetting to play my guitar because I was just watching him and I'm like, I'm having so much fun right now. This is insane. But yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's awesome. Uh, but then, you know, with Cove, I think that, you know, he was just a young person. And I also think that combined with, uh, at that period in my life, like thinking that I knew everything, I don't necessarily think that I gave him a fair shot. You know, I think that when you're like a, like a, whatever he was, like 18 maybe at the time, trying to fill the shoes of Anthony and having... Yeah, that's that's a tough yeah, one, Yeah, you know, I mean, like trying to fill his shoes, being 18, like first time leaving the house pretty much, and like having the whole entire internet, like like hating on you, telling you that you'll never be good. Like, <laughs> you know, it was a really tough, like emotional thing, as well as like when we did our self-titled record with, with Howard... Later, we found out like some of the things, like like the producer tricks that that Howard was doing, was telling Cove that like we all thought he sucked, and it was like the way oh, he was no. trying to use like <laughs> psychology to get the performances out of him was like your band thinks you suck, like you're never gonna make a record, like I believe in you, like we need to prove them wrong, you know, like I believe like we can get better than this, we can get better than this, your band doesn't think you can do it, but I think you can, and like none of these like feelings ever came out like until later, years down the road, we had like kind of a big band blowout one night, we were talking about doing a show, and uh, 
it was just, it finally came out. And it was like, you know, Howard always told me that you guys thought I sucked. And we were like, what are you talking about? None of this is even true. Like, what? where did this come from? And then so finally, it was like, I finally talked to him. And he's like, yeah, like Howard was like always telling me like how much you guys thought I sucked. And like, you know, I would always have to prove you wrong and do better takes. And I was like, wow, that's insane. But then it kind of all made sense because then I remember when we first started tracking our record, I got like hit up by one of the guys in my chemical romance and they were like, yo, what's going on? Like, and there was like this weird, like awkward beef between us. And, uh, it was like, what's going on here? Like, why are you guys weird towards us? Like, well, I thought we were friends. And then it was like, yeah, well, Howard told us that you thought we suck. And I was like, what are you t-? like? I don't know what? what's going on. Like, who says all this stuff? I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, I can see how this is misunderstood, but like, we told Howard that we did not want our record to sound like Three Cheers from Sweet Revenge because it sounded like crap. We didn't say that you guys suck. He took that completely the wrong way. You know, so it was like, that was just, you know, one of those things where it was, again, trying to use like those old, like, uh, I guess the wrong, like unhealthy motivational techniques to get people to work better. But yeah, so all that being said, working with Cove, I think that I never really gave him a fair shot because of where I was at at the time when I thought I was like, you know, king of the world band guy and like I knew everything. But that, yeah, aside from, I mean, Cove just had to work at it a lot harder. You know, Anthony's one of those guys, he's like one of those pro athletes that just like wakes up in the morning and like can shoot three-pointer shots like in his sleep. Cove just (laughs) has to work at it harder, you know? And I think that combined with like showing up to the studio, like smoking and drinking like a Trente cappuccino before doing vocals he had a lot like working against him well i don't care what people say talent is real yeah and i do i do believe that i have met more people who have less talent who have gotten farther by working harder there are still those types out there the one in 10 million types that their genetics and their brain makeup yeah and whatever the way that they were put on this earth um they're just they're just built for one purpose kind of like this dude gene hoagland this drummer we had on the podcast recently legendary metal drummer it's like he was purpose built to be one of the most badass metal drummers in history end of story it's like anthony green was just built to be that vocalist and uh i I, whether or not he could do anything else in life i i don't know because i don't know him personally but like it seems like he was purpose built to just be a fucking rock god vocalist 100 yeah he's he's built to be on the stage with a mic sure well bo thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been awesome having you on and uh you are great don't 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 ever let them tell you different <laughs> i think i think you <laughs> i'd love to have you on again and i i know that it's gonna be fun hanging yeah. out dude i'm stoked man i think it's gonna be really uh fun and i i, I hope people can learn some stuff oh I, I know they will man that i think that that mix sounds killer and just through talking with you uh you've actually done a lot more uh, pre-planning than a lot of the guest mixers do for Nail the Mix and you've got 
really, really killer ideas on topics you want to cover. So I know that it's going to be a great educational time and fun just because get to hear awesome yeah. stories. <laughs> I don't know if they're I don't know if they're quite as good as the poop out on the lawn, but uh, <laughs> there's there's some good ones. <laughs> that one's amazing. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.